just open up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your love in our lives. We thank you that you care deeply for us. We thank you that as we journey towards the cross and as we think of uh, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry and as we think of the week uh, to come, that we will pilgrimage that in our own way this week as we lead up to, to Good Friday and thinking of all that you did on the cross, all that was accomplished in paying for our sin and opening up a door for us that we might walk through that we could receive forgiveness of our sins in a relationship with the God that created us and a relationship that will last for an eternity. So as we walk this week, may we ponder what it means to come into relationship, what it means to have forgiveness of sins, what it means to walk together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. As you turn to your word this morning, we ask that you will Help us to push, apart, push aside the thoughts that may crowd us, thoughts of things of the past week and the worries of the weeks to come, just to be able to take this time to pause and to look into your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to spend some time, or all of our time this morning, on what traditionally has been called Holy Tuesday in some Christian traditions. However, if they left it up to me to name the different days, I would have called it Teaching Tuesday, simply because he spends the whole day in the temple teaching. See, the religious leaders are, are desperately trying to hold on to power. They're desperately trying to remain relevant in the world around them. And because of that, on Tuesday, they begin to challenge Christ And this opens the door for Jesus to teach the crowds. But how did we get there? How did we come to this Teaching Tuesday? Well, you recall the purposeful journey to the cross began on the Friday before. After leading Zacchaeus to salvation, Jesus Christ then moves from Jericho towards Jerusalem and he'll do a stop in Bethany. And as he travels with the crowds or those that were with him, Somewhere along the way, he begins to tell the parable of the ten minus, which for us hold three important truths. You'll recall these from a few weeks ago. The parable clarifies the time of the appearance of the kingdom of God. See, there are those that are waiting for the kingdom of God to be brought right then and there. And the parable tells us, no, there is a here but not yet aspect of the kingdom. That you and I, as believers in Christ, for those who have trusted Him, He is our Lord and we live his, with Him as our King. But that physical aspect of His reigning on the throne here on the earth is still yet to come. Secondly, it's a realistic, realistically portrays for us the rejection and the return of the Lord. It foreshadows the events that are about to take place. And thirdly, it delineates the role of a disciple in the time between the Lord's departure and His return. That you and I are, are given gifts, talents, and resources that we can either use just selfishly for ourselves 
or we can use to invest, invest in other people and invest in the work of God while we're here. Well, then he arrives in Bethany. And when he arrives in Bethany, there's a, a dinner held in his honor. And while he was reclining at the table and, and eating, Mary breaks over this, this perfume. Mary opens a, an expensive jar of perfume and pours it on the Lord. And she pours it on the Lord. Judas interrupts, and, and his reaction gives us some insight. It gives us some insight into that you and I should not be surprised that there are those that walk among us that are not of us. There will be those that will be in the church and those that will call themselves Christians that really are not believers. Judas hid well his own personal expectations and Judas hid well his thievery. The next morning, we observe the triumphal entry. The, the shouts of Hosanna as Jesus rode a young donkey into Jerusalem. And as he descends from Mount Olivet, despite the festive atmosphere around him, tears begin to roll down the cheeks of our Lord as Jerusalem comes into view. He begins to weep for a nation that does not understand. A nation that is bound for an eternity apart from God. A nation that would reject him. In less than a week, the cheers that he could hear ringing in his ears would then become jeers. The shouts of Hosanna would become shouts of crucify him. He was moved by the knowledge of the lostness of the people of Israel. Do you and I see people as Christ saw people in need of a Savior? Are we willing to show the same has said and loving kindness that our Lord showed to people? Are we willing to show that to the people that we live with and work with and walk with on a daily basis? Are we willing to have those hard conversations? And those conversations around repentance and forgiveness can be difficult. Most people believe they're good enough to make it to heaven. That they're alright. They're going to be just fine. But, have, but Scripture is very clear on this one fact. That no one is righteous. Not one. Last week we talked about the cleansing of the temple. The temple had become a marketplace. No longer a house of prayer where people gathered to worship Yahweh. Over time, the religious regulations had become twisted. And they served the interests of the religious leaders. Oppressing those that were entrusted to their care and making a tidy profit from it. See, the leaders of Israel were professors of faith, but they were not possessors of faith. Arrogance had set in. No longer did they lament for sin. That was absent from their worship and their view of life. And that brings us to Teaching Tuesday. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 as we resume our journey to the cross. We're going to begin in verses 27 through 28. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 28, we'll start with. 
And they came again to Jerusalem. And it was as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, now the chief priests had four, or the, the uh, Sanhedrin had four challenges that they would bring to Jesus. And this morning, we're just going to focus in on the first challenge. And for those who don't know or have forgotten, the Sanhedrin are compromised of 71 men who consist of the chief priests. Now, the chief priests were, the chief priests were made up of the high ruling priest and those who had been high priests in the past. Now, many of these priests were Sadducees. That was a religious political sect of the day. They were not big on oral traditions, but they were very big and tenaciously held to the authority of the written word. So those first five books of Moses, and they gripped that. That's what they focused on. Then there were the scribes or the teachers. That was the next part that compromised the, the Sanhedrin. They were the teachers of the law. Many belonged to the religious sect that you'll be familiar with, the Pharisees. They had an emphasis on, on personal piety, and they accepted oral tradition in addition to the written law. The Pharisees themselves were mostly middle-class businessmen and leaders from the synagogue. And even though they were a minority in the Sanhedrin, the popularity amongst the people of the Pharisees gave them a greater influence than their numbers would show. And then thirdly, there were the elders. In Israel, each town had a ruling elder of some sort, and the more prominent elders would be elected or asked to serve as a member, a lay member of the Sanhedrin. And it was this group of people that brought four challenges to Christ. The first one we're going to look at this morning is his authority. The second one is, is his loyalty, and it, it comes in the form of challenging him about paying taxes. The third one was over the resurrection, and the fourth one was over the commandments, which was the greatest commandment. And, and that's my homework for you this week, is to search out in the Gospels to find the four challenges and, and read about them. As, as Jesus' popularity grew and his influence grew, his teaching challenged their norms, the Sanhedrin's norms. In a word, the Sanhedrin felt threatened. They felt threatened by Christ. Jesus had not gone to their schools. Jesus could not point to one of the rabbis among them who he had worked with and listened and taught underneath. See, rabbis would become rabbis by sitting under another rabbi for a time. In today's vernacular, they'd be asking him, hey, what seminary did you attend? Even Paul boasted of being a student of Gamaliel, a well-respected rabbi who you'll recall, his name is mentioned in the Bible. So they want to know, well, what's your authority, Jesus? How can you do these things? The challenge was basically a trap. See, if Christ has no credentials, the expectation was the people would lose respect for him, on the other hand, if Jesus considered himself self-appointed, that, that he was 
there to, and he could do those things that the people saw and he could teach on his own he would be considered arrogant. Giving himself rights that, that only belong to God. And then the hope was that the people would look at him and see him as blasphemous. That he had a lack of respect for God. So they set this bait with great anticipation to see how Christ would react. Well, Jesus answers the question with another question. Don't you hate that? I hate that. He says, well, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. What I found interesting, though, was if the Sanhedrin had answered the question that Jesus asked them, they would have had the answer to their question. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 11, 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. This this turning of the tables is actually quite comical. Jesus sets a trap for them. As I read this, I couldn't help but think, you know, if I was writing this, I think I would have added the word touche at the end of it. You know, or a wink emoji to be more modern. John the Baptist had clearly already told the people where Jesus came from and who Jesus was. In John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This clearly left the Sanhedrin in an awkward spot. And they recognized it. Look at the verses that follow, 31 and 32. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, why then, why then did you not believe him? But, but if, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for all, for they all held that John was really a prophet. See, acceptance of John invites the question, well, why didn't you believe him? And this would include John's testimony to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. Rejection of John, what well, was rejecting him as a prophet, and that would put him at odd, put them at odds with most of the people. See, the people believed that after four hundred years of silence, finally, finally, they had another prophet, and that prospect of being at odds with the people frightened the Sanhedrin. And by now, as most days when Jesus was teaching in the temple, a crowd had begun to gather around. And as the crowd gathered around, the religious leaders took the only out that they could think of. A plea of ignorance. Well, we don't know. Look at verse 33. So they answered Jesus, 
We don't we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So as promised, Jesus refuses to answer them. And once more, this is another time when the religious leaders failed to acknowledge Jesus and who he was. Christ's opponents rejected the truth. Why? Well, because it would have meant submission to Jesus and his teachings. And, and they had hardened themselves to the truth. They didn't want to submit. Hardening, hardening oneself to the truth is even common today. It's very common in our culture. And unfortunately, it can happen to those who profess Jesus Christ as Savior. See, many people, many people want there to be a God. Many people want there to be a heaven. The hurdle more times than not is a moral issue. It's an unwillingness to give up sin. The core of the problem is a pride issue. An aversion to submitting oneself and one's life to the authority of God. God is seen as oppressive for making such demands on our autonomy. And over time, one begins to harden their heart, harden themselves to the truth, and they become more and more calloused. A similar danger exists for the believer. An unwillingness to fully submit to God. There's a sin in our life that, that we don't want to deal with. And for those who have followed Christ for a long time, this can be a very difficult hurdle to overcome. Dealing with sin can be hard for long-time believers because it's having to admit to others around you, and it's a pride issue, but you're admitting, I don't have it all together. I really struggle in this area. I mean, we give lip service to it all the time, like, oh, yes, we need to confess our sins. We need to, we, we, we need to, to lament over our sins. Too often, it's easy to blame our shortcomings on others around us or, or the situation to which we find ourselves in. See, so we can become comfortable with where we are in our Christian life. We're no longer seeking transformation in our lives. We want, we want just enough of God to, to save us and to make us to look holy in front of others. Wilbur Reese wrote a book about this. It was called $3 Worth of God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want, I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want Warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. See, over time, our souls, our hearts can harden. And our souls become calloused. Uh, little is gained from reading Scripture or listening to the preacher or teacher. Well, unless it has something to do with somebody else. See, nothing destroys a person or a church faster 
that when Christianity becomes cultural and it ceases to be transformational, when was the last time that you lamented over sin? Over your sin? It's easy to call for others, you know, we need to have a gathering, everybody, we need to think of our sin and we need to lament over it. When was the last time that you lamented over your sin? Jesus wasn't done with his response to the Sanhedrin. He gives three parables. You can read the one in Matthew chapter 21, 28 through 32. It's called the parable of the two sons. And then in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, you'll also find the parable of the wedding feast, all in response to this challenge. The remaining of our time will be in the next chapter in Mark, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, the parable of the tenants or the parable of the sharecroppers. And before we get into it, if you were to go into your Bibles and you were to look at that parable in the Synoptic Gospels, there are some variances. We're not going to go through those this morning. It doesn't make that big of a difference to what we're dealing with, and, it, it, and you can read on your own how they bring that together. But before we look at the parable, what is a parable? I think we have to answer that question. So a parable is an illustration that paints a picture for the listener and it uses their own experiences, things that they could relate to very well. It's often said that a parable is a heavenly story or a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus would use parables both to reveal truth and to conceal truth. So for those who wanted to know more, parables seemed to reveal truth to them. And Jesus would often explain to his disciples what the parables meant. But for those who had hardened their hearts already and had rejected Christ, parables had the opposite effect. They seemed to conceal truth from them. And more times than not, the parables seemed nonsensical. But, but not here in Mark chapter 11. They understand the parable. In Mark chapter, or Mark chapter 12. Also in Mark chapter 12, unlike most parables, the parable of the tenants is also an allegory. It's allegorical. Some of the imagery carries meaning, but a warning here. Not all and a majority of the parables are not allegories. And if you treat them like allegories, you can begin to miss the main point of what the parable is all about and what Christ is trying to communicate. But this one, there's some allegory to it. And we'll see at the end why we can say that. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. So this was easy for them. Ancient Israel would be dotted with this scene so they could picture it in their minds quite clearly. An unmortared rock wall to keep the animals out a pit that would collect the juice, a limestone press, and a tower that would offer both shelter and protection for the tenants. The illustration itself is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 5, and it borrows imagery that's been used for thousands of years 
to describe the relationship between God, the vine dresser, and Israel, his vineyard. So upon completion of the vineyard, the owner finds somebody to rent it to, and he leases it to these tenants or sharecroppers, and then he goes away. See, Israel is the vineyard. God, the owner, the tenants or sharecroppers, they were the religious leaders. The servants that we're about to read about, well, they are the prophets. And the only son, the heir, is Jesus Christ. Let's read the first part of the parable, starting in verse 2. When the season came, he sent, so that's the end of the season, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the end of the season was there. It was time to collect a portion of the crop that was the owner's. He sends a servant, and as he sends a servant to them, what happens to the servant? The servant's expected to collect what was agreed upon. When the servant goes there, they beat him and they send him away. The next servant is treated even worse. They disrespect him, they smack him on the head, and they send him packing. And the third servant was murdered. And still the owner sends more servants. Some were beaten, some were murdered. No one could ever point at the owner and say, he wasn't patient, he wasn't kind, he wasn't gracious, because he continued to send people. The Sanhedrin understand, understood this all too well. They understood the story that Jesus was telling. The disturbing abuse was meant to force the listeners to think about the relationship between God, God's prophets, and Israel. It was to force them to think outside the box. Then, then Jesus ramps up the parable. The owner just now decides to send his son, his beloved son. It's an indication of the seriousness of what's going on. There are some theologians that think that the word translated beloved here should actually be only. Uh, that's, how they do that, that's how they translate that word in the Septuagint. They treat it that way in Genesis 22 and Jeremiah 6. But regardless, the point is the owner thought his son would be respected and dealt with justly and would come home with what he was supposed to come home with. But this was not so. The tenants thought, if we get rid of the heir, we get rid of the son, then we're going to inherit everything. Now, whether they thought the owner had passed away, who knows, but they had a scheme going. Look at verse 6. And he had still one one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. 
And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, it wasn't through failure to recognize who he was that they slew him. They said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. See, the rejections of, the Christ, of Christ's claims were not because they misunderstood them, but because they understood them all too well. Recognizing Jesus, though, came at a cost, and the religious leaders were not willing to pay it. Jesus draws the crowd more into the story which probably infuriates the Sanhedrin even more. And in verse 9, I'm going to insert a verse from Matthew in the middle. Um, Matthew records something that Mark doesn't, but I think it's important for our context here. So as you're listening to this part of the parable, imagine that you've never heard it before. And then begin to think, if you have children of your own children, or if you don't have children, think of a, a brother or sister and, and, and think about sending them off to do business for you and then having them murdered. That's what Jesus wants them to think as he finishes the parable. He wants them to think about their own children. He wants the crowd to intentionally interact with his story and think of, well, what if that was my son or daughter? Verse 9. What would the owner of the vineyard do? Pause. Here's what happened in Matthew. The crowd, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard or let out the vineyard or rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The crowd was really into it. I like that. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. So he wound up the crowd. And Jesus confirms their conclusion. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. End of parable. And Jesus closes off next by changing the imagery, by quoting a psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I'm going to read it from Luke chapter 20 to help us understand. This is more of a question, and this is directed at the Sanhedrin. In Luke chapter 20, verse 17, we read this. But he looked at them, looked at the Sanhedrin, and he said... Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking directly to the Sanhedrin. He looked at them and he said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Looking at the original context will help us unlock the meaning. The cornerstone of any building is foundational. Where it rests, the rest of the building is lined up to that cornerstone. 
From his commentary, John Collins writes this about this particular psalm. The builders are the wise and knowledgeable ones who have designed the building and supervised its construction, and they have rejected some particular stone as unsuited for this purpose. But they were wrong in their judgment. The psalm is likening Israel to such a stone. The imperial powers, the nations around Israel, thought little of Israel. But God chose his people to be the cornerstone of his great plan for the world. This is the Lord's doing. It's not merely a human accomplishment. And the New Testament writers use this text in Matthew 21:42, where we are in Mark, Luke 20:17, Acts 4:11, and 1 Peter 2:7 to indicate that powerful figures who reject Jesus, especially the religious leaders, are no wiser than the world's powers that thought so little of Israel. The parable hit home just as Jesus knew it would. The the religious leaders continued to harden their heart and, and they understood the role that they played in the parable and they were now determined to fulfill that role. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. But they don't go away for long. If you're following through, you'll see they go back to him. I like how the Christian Standard writes this one. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They needed to cool down. But as you read this, you begin to see God's fingerprints all over this encounter. His sovereignty is is just awesome. See, the Pharisees had determined not to crucify Jesus over the Passover. However, Jesus had just pushed them a little further along the road on that journey to the cross. Because it was going to happen in his timing. Jesus spoke directly to them through the parable. And in a real sense, he answered their question. The question they asked, by what authority was he doing all these things? Well, to understand the parable is is to understand Jesus is God's beloved son, Messiah. The parable also illustrates to us God's extreme patience with Israel. His has said his loving kindness through the years, reaching out to Israel again and again, calling them back to himself. Yet they rejected the message and the messenger again and again. They didn't repent. They didn't return to him. And then the time came when God's grace ended. The northern tribes went into exile in 722 B.C. for their disobedience and rejection. And a mere 117 years later, Judah suffers its first wave of deportations to Babylon for the same reason. Rejection of God's message and rejection of God's messengers. Then there was a second wave. And finally, the mass deportation 
as Judah collapses in 586 B.C. And the southern kingdom comes to an end. But, but even in exile, God isn't done with his people. He sends prophets, sends prophets to call them back to himself. And then around 400 B.C., God became silent. Became silent until John the Baptist. And with the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise, and still, and yet, another opportunity for Israel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Listen as I read. Now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's not what happened. Where we are on Teaching Tuesday, the people would soon change their minds. The shouts of Hosanna would turn to shouts of crucify him. But grace has its limits. As indicated in Psalm 86.15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger. It doesn't say he never angers. It doesn't say there'll never be judgment, but he's slow to anger, and he had proved that. Remember the parable of the rich fool? He acquired all this wealth, and he was feeling pretty good about something. He's like, I got more than what I do to do with. What am I to do? I'll build bigger barns. So he builds bigger barns and he sits back and he's quite pleased with himself. He thought he had it made. You can read that in Luke chapter 12. But in verse 19 it says this, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He just missed the part for tomorrow I die. Because that's what happened. The Lord had other plans. His arrogancy had reached its limits. The next verse, 20 and 21, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You're not going to enjoy them. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And it's here that we'll pause our journey to the cross. With the realization that as time runs out on Israel as a nation, that her time of grace was over, and God would now embark on dealing with man in a different way. See, the offer of grace one day will end for all of us. For all those who reject Him, God's grace will run its course in one of two ways. First, you may be one who hardens your heart towards the things of God. I believe we can be like Pharaoh was and we can harden ourselves to the point where we become arrogant in dealing with God and and all things spiritual seem nonsensical, like a bunch of nonsense. Matthew chapter 13, 14, and 15, we read this. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart have grown, has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, 
they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So we can harden ourselves to the things of God to the point that we become arrogant and close to the truth. And the more we hear, the less we understand. The second way is like the rich fool, your time on earth will one day end. You'll be called to give an account. Then what will you say? I invite you to close your eyes this morning just for a moment. Bow your head. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, don't pass by this opportunity to see the cross in a whole new light this year. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to forgive sin for all those who will repent and to believe. Don't reject the Messiah this year. We'd love the opportunity to speak with you, to share with you what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He offers forgiveness of sin. He offers new life. The cross isn't just about the death of Christ. It's about the hope of mankind. His resurrection can bring hope to all those who will trust in Him. It's not only for this life, it's for an eternity. One day you will have to give an account for what you've done with your knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is a gift being offered. You just have to accept it. Father, this morning we lift our hearts to you. And Father, we ask that we will not have cold hearts to you. That if there is one that has not trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, that they will take the time to seek out one of the elders or myself or a friend that they came with or a parent to ask questions of what it means to see Christ in a new light what it means to have forgiveness of sin, what repentance is, and what new life is, and what forgiveness can be found in the cross. For us, for those of us who have walked for Christ for a short time or a long time or have grown up in the church, Father, we'd ask that this Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday as we journey to the cross, that our hearts might not have become cold and waxed over, that we not be cultural in our Christian walk, but rather that we'll seek to be transformational as we interact with Scripture and others. That you'll transform us as we approach Scripture and as we come to church to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. That you'll increase our hunger, not only to understand the Word, but to apply the Word to see people that are lost and to see people that need encouragement, that we might make the Word a practical, living part of our lives. Father, that we will not want three pounds of eternity or three pounds of God, but we'll want all of you. And that might show up in how we treat each other and how we work with people around us. 
Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us even while we were yet sinners, that you died on a cross for us. Thank you that if we will just come to you in faith and repent of our sin and believe, then you will save us. It is so awesome that the creator of this universe has taken time for his creation. We can see your sovereignty as we journey to the cross and all the events. May we rejoice in your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.